As we prepare to open God's word together, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. O Lord, your word is perfect, reviving the soul. Your testimony is sure, making the simple wise. Your precepts are right, rejoicing our hearts. Your commandments are pure, enlightening our eyes. And the fear of you is clean, enduring forever. Your rules are true and righteous altogether. They are more to be desired than fine gold, sweeter than honey. By them your servants are warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Teach that word to us now by your spirit, we pray, and show us Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to uh, Luke chapter 1. We're going to consider Mary's song together uh, this morning. So Luke chapter 1. And we're going to get the song in its context. So I'll begin our reading at verse 39 and read through verse 56. But the song itself will be the subject of our sermon this morning. So Luke chapter 1 beginning at verse 39. If you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that on page 1088. Uh, in the Gospels, between the Gospel of Mark and John. Luke chapter 1, beginning our reading at verse 39. And let's pay careful attention, for this is God's own word. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is it granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and return to her home. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, one of the wonderful things about this time of year is being able to listen to uh, Christmas songs. Probably everybody has rules for when it's too soon to listen to them, uh, but we're well into the meaty part of listening to Christmas songs. You probably have songs you like, probably songs you don't like, um, but we are acquainted with all the songs of the season. And we know that the scriptures have songs about Christmas as well. Probably the, the most famous is the angels' song in Luke 2 that they sang to the shepherds at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord willing, we'll think about that song next week 
but maybe second to it is this song that Mary sings in praise of what God has done for her um, and what God has done for his people in the sending of the Lord Jesus Christ into the world. Um, although it is in the New Testament, it's very much an Old Testament song filled with imagery and thoughts from the Old Testament, letting us know that Mary was well acquainted with the scriptures. There's language from the scriptures all throughout uh, this song. And so it's a wonderful way of her expressing her joy, her rejoicing um, at what God has done for her and what God is doing through her for all of his people. Um, And so it's a wonderful song to think about and to reflect on and what it tells us about God's work, particularly in sending his son into the world. And so we want to think about this song where Mary rejoices and praises God, and we want to see how she praises God for three things. Are you surprised? Um, She praises God first for the personal grace he's shown to her, um, how God has favored her. So personal grace. And then his perfect goodness. She expands from what God has done for her to what God has done for all of his people um, and how he has worked in perfect goodness in the world Um, And finally, she praises God for his promised help uh, that has come in the Messiah. So that's how we want to think about this song, personal grace, perfect goodness, and promised help as the reasons Mary praises God for what he's done. Uh, She praises him for personal grace shown to her. Um, It's wonderful to see how Mary responds to this spirit-filled greeting by Elizabeth. Um, as Elizabeth greets her in a kind of unusual way, right? Mary was a, a young woman, and so here is Elizabeth, her much older cousin. Um, and in that society, you know, the younger woman would have been much more deferential to the older women. Um, and so to have her come and meet her older relative who treats her like royalty, uh, speaks in the name of the Spirit and says, you're blessed. Not only are you blessed, the fruit of your womb is blessed, and you're blessed among all women, Um, To hear this greeting just must have compounded for Mary this sense of all the things the Lord is doing for her. Um, She'd heard from an angel who came and told her that she was favored from God, that she was going to bring forth a child that would be called Holy, the Son of God. Uh, That must have been on her heart and mind. What Elizabeth said must now be on her heart and mind. Uh, She's probably had time to reflect on the scriptures since she's clearly well acquainted with what the scriptures have to say about the coming Messiah. And, you know, to to be someone who knew the scriptures and then to begin to think, you know, Isaiah prophesied that a virgin would conceive and bear a son and they would call his name Emmanuel. And to to realize maybe that she's the one that Isaiah was talking about. That's got to be something profound. None of us have experienced that to quite that degree, to think of a Bible text that was talking specifically about us individually. Um, and as all these things sort of wave, you know, come over her, it's interesting to see how she responds to all of this in praise, how the praise just wells up in her. Um, and we might think that she would praise first what God has done for her in this grand miracle, Um, her privileged place in redemptive history to bring forth God's Son into the world. Um, But that's not where she begins her praise. Um, I think it's important to see where she begins her praise, that she takes up the the language of praise that we see in the Psalms, that we see in Habakkuk 3. But where does she begin with her praise? With her salvation. Um, Many Reformed commentators specifically have pointed out 
This means Mary is clearly starting with her own sin and salvation. So we can dismiss any notions that she's somehow sinless. Um, Where does she begin her praise? Where does she begin her rejoicing and joy? My soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. It's a reminder to us that all joy has to spring from that beginning fountainhead. To know God as Lord and to know God as Savior. That that is really the the true beginning point of all joy. Um, And that's what Mary praises first. That she knows the salvation of God. That she knows God as Savior. Um, At the end of the day, there's nothing more important that we can know than God as our Savior. To know that we relate to Him in that way. Um, And that all good things that come to us come from the God who is our Lord who has saved us. Uh, She praises the God who is her Savior. That's where she begins. That's where she begins in her whole being. Right? Her soul, her spirit are two ways of just reflecting on her whole being, being filled with joy and praise to God who is her Savior. Um, That's where all true joy begins. That's the kind of joy that nothing else in this world can truly touch. A joy we can always enjoy as God's people to know the joy of the salvation of our God. And it's wonderful that Mary begins here with salvation. Um, And that's the fountainhead of all the other joy that she expresses. Only after she expresses God thanksgiving for her salvation that she knows God as her Savior, as the source of joy, does she reflect on her position in the history of redemption. Maybe it's taken to this point for her to really be able to put it into words. She obviously does so with the help of the Holy Spirit, but she has had, you know, you can almost wonder how you would respond to this if you were in her situation. Um, You know, often when you hear people interviewed after they've won some big sports championship or some big thing has happened, and the reporter, they always ask the same thing, and they always say the same thing. The reporter always asks, what does it feel like to be in this moment? And they always say, I don't know. I I don't think it's really, I haven't really been able to process it yet. I can't really put it into words. Um, And if that's true for something as, you know, minor as a sports title, how must it have been for Mary to hear all of these things from an angel, from her, from her cousin, to hear all of these things being poured into her and had to reflect on that and to realize that what Elizabeth said about her, now every generation is going to say about her. To recognize that she has this privileged, privileged position in the whole history of redemption. There's only one mother of the Lord Jesus Christ. And she would reflect on the fact that she is that mother. And that just as Elizabeth called her blessed, every generation would call her blessed. She is now going to be remembered. We remember her in the Apostles' Creed. right? He was born of the Virgin Mary. She's remembered for the role she plays in redemptive history. And she recognizes that, you know, I'm always going to be tied to the coming of the Savior. I'm always going to be The mother of Jesus, that's how I'm going to be known. And to reflect on that glory, and I think any one of us uh, as a faithful person being put in that position and recognizing, I'm in a position now that every generation is going to call me blessed, and what have I done to deserve that? Who am I to be exalted to that point? 
Right? That, that's something of her, her wonder in this song. That he's looked on the lowly estate of his servant. And that he has done this great thing for me. From behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. Um, he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. I think she's reflecting on that fact that I, I'm nobody. You know, she's probably a 14, 15 year old girl from a nowhere town, Nazareth, from a nowhere place, Galilee. And she's realizing now every generation is going to call me blessed. Why do I deserve this? And that immediately causes her to turn from what the Lord is doing for her to think about what this means about her God. She glorifies the fact that God has extended this grace to her, but then she turns to think about what does this say about a God who would do something like this? And that's what she really begins to meditate on in verses 49 and 50. Who the God is who has done this great thing for her. That that she's a nobody and has been lifted up. What does that say to her about God? She says, in a sense, I received a great and undeserved blessing, but it really speaks to the might and to the holiness of our God. And she glorifies the Lord for what he's done with his great might. It's as if she's saying, only God could do something like this. Sometimes it gets thrown around in Christian circles. It's a God thing. Um, As a Calvinist, I don't like that because it's all a God thing. I believe in the sovereignty of God. But this is one of those mighty things that God has done, and she's reflecting on that. He was the mighty one has done great things in me. Who else could bring forth a child from a virgin? Who else could elevate someone who is a nobody of a low estate And bring them into this blessed position. It's only the might of God. Miracles speak to the fact that the things that are impossible for us are easy for our God. She glorifies God as the one who is mighty. He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And we we might... Pause there and say, why does her mind go to the holiness of God? It's easy to think about this miracle that God is doing in her and say, yeah, I can understand why her her mind goes to the might of God. Only the mighty God could do this great thing, this great miraculous thing in her. But why does her mind go to the holiness of God, particularly that holy is his name? Uh, The name represents the whole of who God is. When you say holy is his name, you're saying that that's who our God is. He is holy, holy, entirely holy. That's who he is. That's how he works. And when we meditate on the holiness of our God, it's meditating on the fact that he is the creator alone who stands apart from the creation that he's made, that he is totally separate, totally independent, totally set apart not touched with any of the infirmities of this life. Not touched with any of the creatureliness of this life. Everything else is creation. He alone is creator. As one commentator put it, infinitely exalted, set apart above all creatures and all creaturely weakness including sin. 
We talked last week, didn't we, about the, the throne room that Isaiah saw with God being high and lifted up where the holy angels are crying out, holy, holy, holy. If you remember the description of that throne room, here are these angels who are burning ones and who have six wings and they call out, holy, 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 and the thresholds of the building shake with the volume of their voice. But even those angels near the holiness of God have to have six wings because with two they fly and with two they cover their faces and with two they cover their feet. Even the angels, the holy angels in glory, are unworthy to look on the Holy One. Need to be covered in the presence of the Holy One. It's an expression of humility and unworthiness. Who can approach this holy God? God is so high and lifted up. And I think Mary is sort of working backwards, thinking about this miracle and saying, I was so low. I'm I'm nobody, and he's done this mighty thing in lifting me up, and he's done this as the one who is so high and exalted that he who is so high would look on me and not just look on me, but stoop to me and help me do this wonderful thing for me. And in this, we see what God has done for all of us. John Calvin very helpfully called this a mirror of God's mercy to us. that We should see in what God has done in exalting Mary a mirror of what God has done for us. Calvin said this, For in mercy God chose us for himself, sinners though we were, rescued us from the abyss of death and had compassion on us. Mary is thus set before us as an example to imitate. Mary bore Jesus not only in her womb, but in her heart. We don't have her place in redemptive history. There's only one mother of the Lord. Uh, But Calvin's exactly right in saying, but you know, that same God who was high and lifted up in holiness, looked down on us, miserable sinners, and showed his grace to us, lifting us up from our humble estate. There's only one mother of the Lord, But by God's grace, we've all become brothers and sisters of the Lord if we believe in Him. And who could do that mighty work but our God? And to think that He in His lofty holiness looked down on someone like me, on someone like you, in your lowly estate, in my lowly estate, and lifted us up to be part of His family. What glory! What grace! I hope that rings from us joy and rejoicing in our whole being to know that the Lord looked on us and loved us. Um, And it's natural for us to look from Mary to ourselves, to the rest of what God has done, because that's what Mary herself does. She reflects on God's personal grace to her, and then she turns to reflect on his perfect goodness in all the ways he's related to his world and to his people. Mary turns from that personal sense of grace to all the sorts of things that God does. And she praises God for his perpetual mercy to his people. In a sense, this is what God has always done. Verse 50, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. This is who God is, merciful to his people. 
Mercy, when it comes across in the New Testament, is almost the the translation that's chosen for that Old Testament word hesed that we usually translate steadfast love or covenant loyalty. Almost always comes across into the New Testament as mercy. And she's praising the fact that we have a God who is loyal to his people, who is covenantly faithful to his people, shows that loyalty to those who fear him from generation to generation. To those who know him, who has revealed himself to them, they know him, they believe in him, Uh, they believe his threats and fear him, they believe his promises and rejoice in him. Those are those who know God. It's the fear of God that keeps covenant with God by true faith. And Mary reflects on the fact that those who fear the Lord always find the Lord to be faithful. He's faithful to every generation of those who fear him. He's been faithful to Mary. He's been faithful to the people that came before her. He'll be faithful to the people that come after her. That is who our God is. He is perpetually merciful to his people, steadfastly loving to all those who fear him and call on his name. Mary praises him for his perpetual mercy, praises God as the righteous judge, The God who will judge the world with righteousness. That's what God's people were looking for. The judge who would come and judge in righteousness that would take down all of the wicked in the world who are described here in in three ways, right? Who are the righteous, who is the righteous judge going to deal with when he comes? What does Mary see? Uh, She sees the proud in heart and the powerful and the prosperous. That the judge will come and deal with all of those kinds of wicked people. Um, and, and why are they singled out for their wickedness? Well, because these are the people that tend to depend on themselves and see no need for a God or no need to submit to the king. Right? Those who are proud in their hearts, they trust in their superior minds. They know better. They don't have to believe all this religion stuff. This is the stuff that if you can't deal with life, you believe. This is the stuff if you're weak or just want to be a science denier or not think about the world. This is the stuff you believe. If you need a Jesus, then that's fine. I don't need that. I'm fine on my own. It's the arrogance of those who speak out of the pride of their heart. I have a superior mind. I know better. I can do for myself. What is the problem of the powerful? They often look to their superior might. I don't need anyone. I can make my own way in the world. I'm the one sitting on the throne. I'll trust in my might. Thank you very much. Or the prosperous, what do they trust in their superior money? I have all the resources I need. What do you mean I need a king? I have all that I need in this world. And what does Mary say the righteous judge will do when he comes and he finds those? He says, well, when he comes, the proud in heart, he will scatter. And the powerful, he will pull down from their thrones. And the rich, he will send away empty. They'll find that none of that helped them stand in the final day. None of that helped them stand before a righteous judge. And Mary praises the fact that this judge will reign in righteousness. 
and to the wicked he will be a righteous judge, but who will he be to the faithful, to the needy, to those who are not proud in heart, but who are humble, to those who are not powerful, but powerless, to those who are not prosperous, but penniless, what will he be for them? Well, he will be a faithful father. What will the poor in spirit, the humble and powerless find when this king comes? He will exalt them. Others will be pulled down. They'll be exalted. What will the penniless find when he comes? He will fill the hungry with good things. It's a complete reversal of the way the world works. That's the promise of his coming. That's what Mary's looking forward to. The king who will make everything right. And how can she be so sure that he'll be able to do this? Well, because of the strength of his arm. That's where Mary looks and directs us to. He has shown strength with his arm. That's the power that we will see. That's interesting too, the power of his arm. The the Old Testament tends to speak three ways of the power of our God. Sometimes what God does is with his fingers. Those are the sort of things that are easy for him to do. Uh, when When he put gnats on the people in Egypt, they said that's the finger of God. It only took his finger to put the gnats on the people. When it came to the other plagues, they said, oh, this is the hand of God. That's more powerful. The things he begins to do with his hand, that's an expression of greater power. But you know the greatest expression of his power in the Old Testament is when he shows his arm. That's when you really see the power of the Lord revealed. When he unleashes the strength of his arm. That's what drowned Pharaoh in the Red Sea. That's what destroyed Egypt and all its hosts and let God's people walk away on dry land. It was the arm of the Lord. And that's what Mary is looking to. That's what Mary is praising. She's saying, you know, now the arm of the Lord has come. That's what's coming in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the powerful arm of the Lord. And so often in the Old Testament, when the arm of the Lord is revealed, that speaks of the redemption of his people. That's the power God's people need to be set free. Uh, That's why Isaiah is is sort of wondering and, and prophesying with with great wonder as he sees this suffering servant who's going to come and be afflicted for the sins of God's people, but he's going to also be the revelation of the arm of the Lord. Right? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Here is the one who comes and is wounded for our transgressions, who's mighty in power. And Mary sees with the help of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is coming as the arm of the Lord, the great strength of the Lord revealed. And what will he do when he comes into the world by the strength of his arm? He will cast down God's enemies and the enemies of his people. He will raise up his own in redemption. The power of his arm will be revealed on the cross when he conquers sin and death and hell. The power of his arm will be revealed when he rises from the dead triumphant over them. The power of his arm will be revealed when he comes again in glory. But Mary knows that this coming means the arm of the Lord has been revealed. The strong help for God's people has come. And that's where she ends with the promised help that is coming. 
What does all of this represent for God's people? It's the help that God promised. Um, Much has been made of Mary's choice of words in this song. Everything is in the past tense. And so some people have asked, is she talking only about the things God has done in the past? Or is she maybe prophesying about what God will do in the future and what he will do in the future is so certain that you can speak of it as it's it's already happened? Um, And I would kind of want to say yes, right? It's what God has done and what God will do because this is always the God who's been the helper of his people. What he has done, he will continue to do. But this is the greatest deliverance. This is the greatest help. God's people have ever received is the Lord Jesus coming into the world. God has always been a helper of his people. He's always remembered his people in mercy, but this is the greatest evidence of a God who helps in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greatest help God has ever sent to his people because God now has come in the flesh to be the helper of Israel. And that's what she celebrates in verses 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. This is a great mercy coming, but it would be wrong to see this mercy as something new. This is the way God has always dealt with his people. He's always remembered his people in mercy God had spoken, he promised, and he always does what he promises to do. Um, what is the problem? It's not, it's not that God forgets his promises, but we feel at times as if he's forgotten them. Um, the Psalms wrestle with this. We know you've promised, but it seems like you've forgotten. We, we know you promised that David's son would rule, but we don't see him ruling, and where is he? And and if you've forgotten that promise, will you forget other promises? And whenever God delivers on a promise, it's his way of saying to us, I have remembered. I don't forget. That's the wonderful glory of when God shows us and lets us see his promise revealed. It's a reminder to us that I don't forget. I have remembered. One commentator put it this way, that is how God remembers by allowing us to experience his mercy and thus prove that he has not forgotten us. And in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, he's profoundly showing, he's remembering the promise he made to every generation. So the promises you spoke to our father Abraham and to everyone before him. Right? Adam was promised the seed of a woman who would come and crush the serpent's head. This is the mercy promised to Adam. Abraham was promised there would be a seed through whom all the world would be blessed. This is the mercy promised to Abraham. Right? Israel was promised there will be a prophet greater than Moses who will arise. A a priest greater than Levi in the order of Melchizedek. That was the mercy promised to Israel. It's fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a promise that David would have a son to always sit on his throne. And he would rule forever on the throne of his father, David. This is the mercy promised to David. Right? There was a promise that there would be one who would come, would be the star of Jacob, who would be the ruler, who would be the branch, who would be the, the Messiah, the Emmanuel, 
the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace. He's all of those things that were promised to the prophets. That is his mercy. Now come. And that's why at his death he can say, it is finished. Everything that is promised has been fulfilled. That's why Paul says, all the promises of God find their yes and amen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so important for us to realize how all of those promises were fulfilled for Mary. That she could look back and say, everything that God has promised us is fulfilled here. This is the help that he promised to the fathers having arrived. It's so important for us to realize that God never forgets his promises because he's made promises to us that have not yet been fulfilled. Promises that we cling to. That Christ will return in glory. That the dead will be raised. That there'll be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwell. And that we will live together with the Lord and with all of God's people Alive, body and soul, in eternal joy forever. Those promises are still awaiting. And let us not forget that God is a God who never forgets his promise. And will allow us to see in time that he has remembered them. Um, I'll end with this from J.C. Ryle about the importance of us clinging to the promises of God. God's promises are the manna that we should daily eat and the water we should daily drink as we travel through the wilderness of this world. We walk by faith, and faith leans on the promises. But on these promises we may lean confidently. They will bear all the weight we can lay on them. We shall find one day, like the Virgin Mary, that God keeps his word, and that what he has spoken, so he will always in due time perform. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his presence with glory and with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty and dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Father, how thankful we are to be reminded that you have remembered your promises and mercy that Mary could look back on the whole history of your promises and see them all fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can praise her with you for the personal grace you've extended to us, the perfect goodness with which you rule and continue to rule in this world, and the promise of your kingdom that's coming with our Lord Jesus Christ. So we pray that we might look to all the promises that you did fulfill in him, and we might have great hope that you will in your time remember your promise to us as well. And send your son again in glory to make all things new. May we cling to those promises as your Old Testament saints did. May we have Mary's faith in looking to you. And may we rejoice and praise your name for all you've done in the sending of your son into the world. And hear our prayers for we ask them in his name. Amen.